0: Philippians chapter 1, we'll be starting in verse 3. As always, if you would stand for the reading of God's word this morning. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine, for you all making my prayer with joy. Because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now, and I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, our God, our Lord. God, I pray this morning as we come to this text, Lord, as we we see this example that Paul is giving us of a a joy-filled life despite the circumstances, despite being arrested, chained to a Roman guard, we see that Paul, reflecting on the past, living in the present, and having such a confidence about the future, Lord, was joy-filled. God, I pray that this is a, a mark of our church, Lord, mark of of the members, of the people that are a part of this church, Lord, uh, that they're marked by this same type of joy. God, as we foresee hard times, maybe persecution, maybe uh, the culture, the government, uh, whatever, Lord, uh, attacking the church, Lord, I pray that we have this same spirit, the spirit that was in Paul, the Holy Spirit that produced joy despite trials. God, I pray that for our church. I pray that we are a witness that true joy only comes from you. That you're the source. That that would be a testimony. Be with us this morning, Lord, as we continue to walk through this book. In your son's name, amen. may be seated. Today we are going to finish up the sermon, really, I started last week, looking at Paul as an example of, of joy. I said this last week that the the book of Philippians is really a book of joy. It's often called the epistle, which means letter, the letter of joy. And, and this is a good thing because we are increasingly living in a joyless society. A society that's being marked more and more by anger, bitterness, frustration, hate, worry, fear, and probably more than anything else, uncertainty. In fact, as I was getting prepared this week for this sermon, I just happened to look up the depression rates in America, guessing that they were were high, especially after 2020, and I I just wanted to see how high, and I came across a a Gallup poll uh, on the subject of depression. And according to this poll, in 2015, about 10% of the population was clinically diagnosed as depressed. That's 1 in 10 Americans were clinically diagnosed as depressed, uh, either diagnosed or being treated for depression. Again, that's 2015. Do you think that number has gone up or down in the last eight years? Well, in 2023, this year that percentage has jumped to a little under 20%. Almost double. Meaning, about 20% of Americans are currently diagnosed or being treated for depression. That is one out of five people. One out of five people. Now, let me just be clear. I'm not making any personal accusations or assumptions. But in general... There's something wrong when one-fifth of a population is depressed. And think about this. so I was reflecting on this. Think about this. It's one-fifth of the most wealthy, prosperous, free nation that, that has ever existed. One-fifth clinically diagnosed as depressed. When I was reflecting on this and just kind of meditating, thinking about this this number, it really just reminded me that circumstances cannot produce joy. Circumstances cannot produce joy. Otherwise, we would be the most joy-filled nation that's ever lived. With all the comforts, opportunities, and wealth we have, but we're not. Again, circumstances cannot produce joy. It can produce temporary happiness or Maybe better yet, fleeting pleasures. But it can't produce true, lasting, satisfying joy. Because that type of joy can only come from a relationship with the Lord. And Paul really is a living example of this kind of joy. Remember, Paul wrote the letter, the epistle to the Philippians because he wanted them to know... That despite his circumstances, under house arrest, falsely accused, not knowing his fate, despite his circumstances, he was joy-filled. In fact, joy is just all over the book of Philippians. It's, it's just a word that's used over and over again, and, and, and Paul's joy just comes over off the pages. This is a joy-filled man, and he wanted the Philippian church to be a joy-filled church. Therefore, it should come as no surprise that right after Paul's formal greeting, he starts this epistle with joy and gratitude. Verses 3 through 8 are all about Paul's joy, gratitude, and love for the Philippian church. And as I said last week, we really Get to see a glimpse into Paul's heart And here's what i'm excited about again, we live in an increasingly joyless society Therefore if we as a a church follow paul's example as christians trusting god to the point of having an unshakable joy People are going to notice They're going to want to know what we have And that's just a a great opportunity to point them to Christ, the source of our joy. So, in Philippians 1, verses 3 through 6, Paul really gives us three examples of how to live a joy-filled life as a believer. Paul, joy in thinking about the past. Paul's joy in his partnership in the present. And Paul's joy in his confidence in the future. We have past, present, and future in these three verses. And we learned last week that that Paul chose. He put effort. He chose to take thoughts captive. He chose to dwell on the good in people, not the bad. He believed the best in people. He didn't let past offenses or past hurts consume him. He wasn't bitter. But instead... He trusted in the truth found in Romans eight twenty eight, which says, And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. Therefore, Paul can honestly say, as he does in Philippians 1, 3, I thank my God in all, every single one of them. I, I thank my God for all my remembrance of you, because he knows God will use everything for our good and for his glory. Paul chose to dwell on the good in people, not the bad. He chose to trust in God's sovereignty rather than dwelling on past hurts. Paul had a joy-filled perspective of the past, but it wasn't just the past as we saw last last week. He also had a joy-filled partnership in the present. Philippians 1 verse 4 says, Always in every prayer of mine for you all making my prayers with joy because... Of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. Paul had a a present fellowship in the gospel that produced joy. In fact, one of the reasons that Paul wrote this letter to the church at Philippi is because the church at Philippi just had sent him a financial gift as he's in Rome right, under house arrest. They they sent him a, a gift to support him in his ministry in Rome. Paul's partnership with this church just brought him joy. And I'm sure uh, the, the note, the person that came with the gift and the gift itself just brought Paul joy. So we see past, Paul's joy in thinking about the past. We see present, right? Paul's joy in his partnership, his fellowship in the present. And finally today, we're going to be looking at Paul's joy in his confidence about the future. It's confidence about the future. Again, look at verse 6. It says this I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. Now, out of all three of these points, Paul's confidence in the future is the most foundational aspect of Paul's joy. It's one of the reasons I wanted to just take a whole Sunday to talk about this one verse. In fact... Verse 6 is really the the linchpin that holds the entire passage together I I was thinking about going through this But there is another kind of chiasm that we see in in this passage and and right at the center of this chiasm is verse 6 And i've talked about this before Often in scripture the center is the most important point and that's true here Verse 6 is the the most important verse in this whole entire passage It's it's paul's confidence about the future future that produces an unshakable joy If Paul didn't have a confidence about the future, it wouldn't matter what he thought about the past. If he didn't have a confidence about the future, it wouldn't matter what he did in the present. If he wasn't sure about the future, his joy would be unfounded and shallow. Therefore, verse 6 is the linchpin that holds everything together in this passage, so... Let's finish the sermon we started last week by just looking at this last point. Paul's joy in his confidence in the future. Again, verse 6, if you would look at it, it says this, And I am sure, I am sure of this. Now, the Greek word translated sure is patho, which it's a common word in, in the New Testament. It's used 52 times in the New Testament. And it has a connotation of being persuaded, I am persuaded, or being convinced, right? I am convinced, or being sure, being sure of something. It, it can also be translated confident. Paul had a confidence, and this is how the NASB translates it. It says this, for, for I am confident of this. Paul had a confidence of the future, and, and it was this confidence that sustained his joy despite the circumstances that he found himself in. In fact, the word sure, confidence, is in the perfect tense, meaning his confidence about the future had an ongoing effect in Paul's life. It kept him joy-filled even in trials. He was so confident about the future that his joy was unshakable. Again, verse 6, And I am sure, absolutely sure, I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. Paul had a joy because he knew that that he, God, that that he who began a good work, referring to salvation, in you, the you is plural in Greek, meaning y'all, right? Everyone that he's talking to in the church, the individuals within the church. He who began a good work in y'all will bring it to completion. Philippians 1, 6, therefore, is, is one of the clearest verses in all of Scripture on the doctrine of the perseverance of the saints. The perseverance of the saints. That no one whom God has brought to himself, whom God has saved, will ever be lost. Again, verse 6 is just clear. Who, he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion. Now, Paul is confident about this, and here's why. Simply, salvation is a work of God, not ours. God is working in this verse, not man. He began a good work. Therefore, he will bring it to completion. It's God's work. Listen, if salvation depended on us, we could have no confidence. We would mess it up. So Paul is making it clear. God began a good work. Therefore, he will bring it to completion. One theologian put it this way. God has no unfinished works. The God who saves is the God who justifies, sanctifies, and glorifies. The God who begins is the God who completes. Paul's confidence comes because he knows that salvation is a work of God from beginning to To end Salvation, past, present, and future It's all All of it A work of God Now, remember Lydia We we talked about her two weeks ago As we talked about the the church in Philippi Getting planted We talked about her salvation She was the first convert of the Philippian church Meaning she's part of the y'all, right? In verse 6 He who began a good work in y'all, right? Lydia's part of that Listen to what Luke writes in Acts 16, 14. It says this, verse 14. One who had heard us was a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple goods, who was a worshiper of God. Listen to this. The Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. In other words, Paul shared the gospel. Lydia believed... It was her belief, she believed, but Luke makes it clear that her belief, her faith, came because God opened her heart. Otherwise, the gospel would have fallen on deaf ears. It was God who softened Lydia's heart, and the result was belief. And this is true for every one of us. This is true for everyone. One of us, if god didn 't soften our hearts, we would have never believed we would have never understood the gospel, therefore, even our faith is the work of God, even our faith is a gift from god and Luke wants to make this very clear in acts eleven eighteen he writes this: when they heard these sayings they fell silent, and they glorified God, saying, then to the Gentiles also God has granted, the root of that Greek word is gift. He has gifted repentance that leads to life. The repentance that leads to life came from God. He granted repentance to the Gentiles. It was a gift. Acts 13 48 says this, and when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord, and as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. God softened their hearts, He opened their hearts like Lydia, and they believed. Again, even our faith is a gift. Of God, And Paul makes this extremely clear in Ephesians 2, 8, where he says, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not of your own doing. It is it, the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. In other words, we cannot even boast in our faith. It's a gift from God. In fact, it's all a gift from God. Grace, we've been saved through faith, all of that comes from God. Verse 10, for we are his workmanship. Does that sound familiar? Remember Philippians 1.6, he who began a good work, for we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should just walk in them. I want to be clear. Our salvation is a work of God. It's a work of God. And this work didn't start when we put our faith in the Lord. It started well before then. The Bible makes it clear it started way, way before then. It started in eternity past, before the foundations of the world. Ephesians one three says this, His glorious grace. God chose us before the foundations of the world. He predestined us for adoption. He opened up our hearts that we would hear the gospel and believe. Therefore, we can't boast in our salvation. God gets all the credit in every aspect of our salvation, even our faith. J.A. Mortier writes this, No one would be saved had not the Lord been moved by his own spontaneous and unexplained love to choose his people before the world was, and at the decisive moment, to open our hearts to hear, understand, and accept the word of truth, the gospel of our salvation. Therefore, Paul can say in Philippians 1.6, with certainty, And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you, right, he who chose you, predestined you, called you, softened your heart, will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. This is why Paul is so confident. Because salvation isn't a work of man. Listen, we would mess it up. (laughs) Andy used to say all the time, I just remember this, if if I could lose my salvation, I'm sure I would. It's a work of God. We are His workmanship. That word is, means like masterpiece. It's like a painter painting a, a painting or a, a person making a sculpture. I mean, God started this work; He finishes it. We are His workmanship. Turn with me to Romans eight twenty nine. Romans eight twenty nine. I was reflecting on this because Philippians 1, six is one of the clearest passages on the perseverance of the saints that those that are saved will make it will persevere God will keep them and so I started thinking about other passages that just clearly teach this doctrine and Romans 8 is one of the clearest and, and it hit me as I was kind of reading through Romans 8 and reflecting on it, it is that Romans 8 is just a uh, a, a greater explanation of uh, Philippians 1-6. Paul takes the same truth that's found in Philippians 1-6 and he's just expanding on it in Romans 8. Let me, let me show you what I mean. Look at, look at Romans 8 verse 29. He says this, For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many believers, and those whom he predestined, he also called, and those who whom he called he also justified, and those whom he justified he also glorified. now let me ask the question who's acting in these two verses? God, over and over and over again, God foreknew, God predestined, God called God justified, God glorified, salvation is an act of God. Not man, we are his workmanship. Then Paul asks this question, verse 31. What shall we say to these things? I mean, that's just a great question. What shall we say to these things? In other words, Paul is asking, why, why is this a big deal? I mean, it's it's this type of, of talk that splits churches, Paul. Just mention the words election and predestination and people start to get nervous. But Paul does no problem bringing these subjects up at all. They're they're just common themes throughout the writing of Paul. Why? Why? Well, he's going to tell us. Why, Why does he teach these truths? Well, in Romans 8, he tells us why, and it's just this. If God is for us, who can be against us? Did you hear that? If God knew us, loved us, chose us before the foundations of the world, before creation, in in eternity past, who can be against us? Who could be against us? Verse 32. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Jesus Christ is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulations or distress or persecution or famine or Nakedness or danger or sword, as it is written, for your sake, we're being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to, the, to be slaughtered. No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through Him who loved us. Again, this is all predicated off of God's love, God's action, God's work. Therefore, In verse 38, Paul can say this. For I am sure. Does that sound familiar? Same exact Greek word. I am confident in this. I am persuaded. Same Greek word as Philippians 1.6. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. This is why Paul is so confident. Because it's God's work, not ours. Listen, again, if salvation depended on man, no one would be saved. He makes this clear in Romans 3, no one seeks God. If salvation depended on man, no one would be saved. If perseverance, staying saved, depended on us, we we should have absolutely no confidence whatsoever. But Paul says, I am sure, confident. Ephesians 6, 1 that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion. Therefore, God gets all the glory. He gets all the glory for both our salvation and our perseverance. It's his work. Just listen to the doxology at the end of Jude. I love this doxology. I read it all the time. In fact, I was at a funeral yesterday and God just put it on my heart as I was closing in prayer just to read it. Jude 24, it says this, Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy. He gets the glory, we get the joy. Did you know that? God's glory brings us joy. God's made us to worship him. Therefore, when he glorifies himself, when when we see his glory, we find joy. Meaning, the most loving thing God can do is glorify himself. Because it's our greatest joy. He gets the glory, we get the joy. And he'll make sure that happens. To the only God, our Savior, through Christ Jesus our Lord, be glory, majesty, majesty, Dominion and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen. Just amazing. Now, before we move on to the second part of this verse, we need to ask, why is this so important to Paul? Why is this truth so foundational to Paul's joy? And, I think the answer actually is pretty simple, and, and I hope it's encouraging to many of you. Remember the context of, of this epistle. Where was Paul writing this letter? From Rome, right? Under house arrest. In fact, when you read the book of Acts, you'll see that the first part of Paul's ministry, his mini- his, uh, his missionary journeys, the first part, he moves around everywhere freely, directed by God, and kind of goes from city to city to city. But the second half of Paul's ministry, he's arrested in Jerusalem, and from that point on, he's going wherever God has him through the guards that he is uh, attached to. (laughs) He He doesn't have the freedom to go where he wants to the second half of the book of Acts. So my question is, how much influence does Paul have on the Philippian church at this point? Not very much. He doesn't even know if he'll ever see them again. And back then, letters took a long time to get from point A to point B. There wasn't any Skype. He couldn't Zoom, call them, or even just pick up the phone, call them, or text them, right? And remember, Paul loved this church. Paul absolutely loved this church. These are people that were so close to him. In fact, Philippians 1.8 says this, I, I yearn for you, I yearn for you all with the affections of Christ Jesus. These were spiritual brothers and sisters. In fact, these were spiritual sons and daughters of Paul. He absolutely loved them. Paul loved this church, and, and he knows the devil is going to attack them. He just knows that. Through persecution, he knows persecution is coming. Through division within, in fact, the letter will see that, that he hears about division starting within this church. And, and the devil was going to use that, or could use that, to just tear apart this church. Through false teaching, we see that in this letter too. There, there's all these major threats that, that the devil is going to use to try to tear apart this church, this young church. And, and Paul is stuck in Rome. He's stuck in Rome. He couldn't protect them, teach them. He couldn't shepherd them through the attacks. Therefore, Paul could be sitting in prison, completely stressed, devastated, anxious, or even depressed that that he couldn't be there for this church that he loved. But he wasn't. Instead, he was joy-filled. Why? Why? Because their salvation, their justification, their sanctification, their glorification didn't depend on Paul. It didn't depend on him. It depended on God. Therefore, Paul said this with confidence. I am sure, I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion. In fact, I can almost guarantee that when Paul started worrying about this church, he would remind himself of this truth. Paul was joy-filled because it was all in God's hands. Paul had a trust in the sovereignty of God, and it brought him joy. It brought him joy. Now, I know that there are a lot of you who are worried about family members. Children, maybe parents, worried about what's going on in their lives. Here's just a, a simple application from Philippians one verse six: "Trust in the sovereignty of God." Now let me clarify that. Be faithful. Be faithful. Seek opportunities to share the gospel seek opportunities to proclaim truth in, into these loved ones life pray for them but if your involvement in their lives is limited for whatever reason just just find peace and joy in the the same way paul did i am sure of this that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion salvation depends on god not you it depends on god not you We were never given the responsibility to save people. Or even to keep people saved. That's above our pay grade. We don't have the ability to do either. To save people or keep people saved. We're called to be faithful. We're called to faithfully proclaim the good news, the gospel to the lost. We're called to faithfully proclaim truth. In fact, I think about this as a pastor, as I'm going through this passage, and, and I, I, I don't have the responsibility of keeping people saved in the church. I've been given a task to proclaim truth, God's word, to counsel with God's word, to share the gospel, to, to perform the sacraments, to, to, to perform church discipline if necessary, but, but I can't keep people saved. I'm called to be faithful. In fact, if you're a parent this morning, your calling is to be faithful and then trust God with the results. We are called to be faithful and then trust God. There's a joy and peace in that. There's a joy and peace in that. Which brings me to the last part in Philippians chapter 1 verse 6 and If you're not there, why don't you turn back to Philippians 1, verse 6. There's just a little phrase that I want to look at quickly. Paul says this I am sure, confident, I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion in this phrase, at the day of Jesus Christ. With this one little phrase, Paul gives us the essential reason for his joy, and it's simply this, God's work cannot be stopped. God's work cannot be stopped. One of the things I actually am surprised about in the book of Philippians, and studying it as a whole, was just the the repeated theme of Jesus' second coming. It's not something I typically think of when I think of the book of Philippians, But you should, we should, because it's a core theme that we see over and over and over again in the book. Let me just show you what I mean. Again, Philippians 1, 6 says this, I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. Turn to Philippians 1, verse 10 now. It says this, So that you may approve what is excellent and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ. Again, Jesus' second coming. Now turn to Philippians 2, verse 9. This is familiar to us. It says this Therefore, God has highly exalted him. This is about Jesus. And bestowed on him the name that's above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow. In heaven and in earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Now turn to Philippians 2.16. Holding fast to the word of life so that in the day of Christ I may be poured proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain. Now turn to Philippians 3.20. For our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. And finally, turn to Philippians 4, verse 5. It says this, Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Listen, the, the, the book of Philippians is a joy-filled book. That's obvious, but it's also a future-oriented book. And I don't think you can separate those two things. Paul was joy-filled because he knew, he was sure that no matter what happened in the present, the future was certain. Jesus is coming back. We will be spending eternity with him. To live as Christ, to die is what? Game. This is why Paul was, was so joy-filled despite his circumstances. I mean, you can't, you can't do anything to a man that says to live is Christ, to die is gain. What are you going to do, kill him? Gain. <laughs> gain. Listen, Paul always interpreted the present in light of the future. Did you hear that? Let me say it again. Paul always interpreted the present in light of the future, and because of this, nothing could rob him of his joy. Let me just give you one example of what I mean. Turn, or you, you can turn, turn to 2 Corinthians 4, verse 17. 2 Corinthians 4, verse 17, Paul writes this amazing statement for this light and momentary affliction. Now, that's incredible because how could anyone say light, light and momentary affliction if they have gone through what Paul has gone through? Suffering. Betrayal by those who he was closest with. False arrest, imprisonment, beatings. And not just beatings, but I mean beatings. Once stoned, and to the point where they thought he was dead. Dragged him outside of the city and he wasn't. I mean, this man had to have been so scarred because of, of the beatings he's had. Shipwrecked three times. And Paul calls it Light. ...and momentary affliction. How is that... How how could you say that? Here's how. Because he was sure of the future. Verse 17. For this light and momentary affliction... ...is preparing us for an eternal weight of glory... ...beyond all comparison. Do you see the word light and weight? Compared to, to what is coming... ...all of it is light. It's not even comparable... I mean, that verse tells you how great eternity is going to be right there. The suffering that happens in this life doesn't even compare to the joy we'll have in the next. In comparison, Paul calls it light and momentary. Our future is so sure, that means we can have joy in trials. Joy in suffering. Because Jesus is coming. And when Jesus comes, he will right all wrongs. You know, that, that's the main reason why we can just let past offenses go. We talked about letting past hurts and offenses go. You can let those go. You can take them captive and say, I'm not going to think about them because we know that they will all be taken care of one day. And you can say, God, I'm just trusting you with it. He will destroy all enemies That's a scary thought, by the way. We're increasingly getting more and more people that feel like enemies within our country. Enemies of the gospel. Enemies of the church. And for a lot of us, I feel a bitterness and anger towards these people. We should have a righteous pity and fear for what they're going to have to face one day. And love and hope and wanting to share the gospel with them. He will administrate perfect justice when he comes. He will heal all hurts. He will rid this world of pain, suffering, and evil, and all of his followers will be glorified. Therefore, for Paul, there there is there nothing to be anxious about. Nothing to be fearful of. Because he was sure of this, that that he who began a good work in you will will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. Verse 6 is just foundational to Paul's joy. Paul was joy-filled because he was so confident about the future that nothing in the present could shake him, could rob him of that joy. Let me just end by saying this this morning. I know there's been just a major shift in our culture within the last couple of years, and I think every single person feels it. Again, one-fifth of Americans are being treated for for depression right now, almost almost doubled within eight years. And if you're watching the news, it's not going to (laughs) help. And listen, I, I get it. I get it. There is a lot of uncertainty, fear, and Anxiety about what what the future holds in this country alone, not just the world. But listen, if Jesus is coming back, which he is, we as Christians have absolutely nothing to fear. Here's the application this morning Sleep, sleep well tonight, be joy filled. Turn the news off sometimes. Remember that for those who love God, all things work together for good. We should have no fear about the future because God is completely sovereign over it. And just in case you don't know, he's revealed the ending. He wins. That's my my summation of the book of Revelation. I just preached it. Don't ever say I didn't preach through the book of Revelation. <laughs> he wins. And because he wins, we win. Let me, let me just say this, and I want to end here, because if you're not a, a true Christian this morning, for those that haven't put their faith in Christ, you, you don't have that confidence. Today is the day of salvation. Trust in him. He came. He lived a perfect life, a life we couldn't live. He didn't mess things up. He died on the cross for our sins. He was raised on the third day. He's coming back one day, and and if you don't have faith in Him, you, you should be terrified of that. So trust in Him. Put your faith in Him. Follow Him. If you haven't trusted in Jesus as your Lord and Savior, don't wait. Pray. Dear God, our Father in heaven, Lord, we again come to you with humble hearts, Lord, the thought that our salvation spans eternity from eternity past, guaranteeing an eternity future. God, that's an amazing thought. That you would love us despite us, that there was nothing in us. Yet you brought a softened heart to our hearts. You had someone share the gospel with us. You awoken a, a dead soul that we would put our faith in you. You would send your son to to pay for our sins. You would give us the Spirit living within us, which is a guarantee, Lord, that we will be with you in eternity. God, I pray that we have a confidence about the future that would take away all worries, all anxiety about the present. That we trust in you and your sovereignty, your goodness, your wisdom, a a trust that would carry us through any trial singing praises to you as we walk through it. In your son's name, amen.